0: I distinctly remember uh, sometime around the year 1990, 1991, uh, being curled up uh, behind the sheets in bed with my family as we watched live video of the Gulf War happening. Um, Me and my sister, we were not allowed to watch Saved by the Bell or Step by Step, and here we were watching a live uh, video of the Gulf War happening. Uh, me and my sister, uh, we, we grew up watching this, and I don't know if she remembers, but I remember at that time, adjusting the antennas on the screen of our Magnavox TV and hitting the side of it so that the uh, frame would be steady and clear. And I remember all of a sudden, uh, green lights uh, popping on the television screen. Because if you were around then or if you watched this back then, you remember watching the nightly news. And all you saw was uh, the vision of uh, this video through night vision, and everything was green. And so you saw missiles blasting, and you saw bombs dropping, explosions everywhere. And gunfire, and carnage, and all-out war right before your eyes. That's a lot to take in as a five-year-old. And I remember uh, being that young, um, being so affected by what I was watching And these images were being ingrained into my brain. feeling sadness uh, for what I was seeing at the the loss of life of people on the other side of the world. Feeling confusion and trying to make sense of violence and people dying for a cause I I did not understand. And as my emotions swelled up and my uh, concerns were growing, all of a sudden something happened. My dad picked up the remote and turned off the television screen because it was time for bed and just like that all of my worry and all of my concern just began to dissipate. So much so that by the next morning I was back to watching Sesame Street and everything was fine and I forgot everything I watched the day before. Uh, And 25 years later I find myself in a very similar place uh, where during the day I might take a break from work and and turn on the television or go online and I'll see the most awful images on the television screen that are happening on the other side of the world that I cannot bear to look at. But I just turn off the TV and get on with my life. Uh, Friends, you have seen and you have heard of the mass loss of life, the mass displacement of Syrians since the war began in 2011. What began as peaceful protests by the people of Syria quickly escalated to the government and ISIS beginning to exterminate their own people. 470,000 lives lost and this country has 22 million people in it. Half of the people, 11 million people are displaced. In one form or another. 11 million people on the run. That's 160 Lincoln Financial Fields packed out. That's a lot of people. Displaced. And about 5 million uh, are trying to find refuge anywhere they can. 6 million remain in Syria just wandering. Thousands of Syrians fleeing every day as they see their neighborhoods being bombed. Brothers, daughters, friends, neighbors, mothers being killed. They walk at night so that snipers won't get them, so that their young boys aren't pulled in and forced to fight in the war, so that their young daughters are not pulled in and forced into all kinds of evil. U.S. and international law defines a refugee this way. As a person who has left his country of nationality or residence and who is unable to return due to a well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. And by those standards, do you know that there are over 60 million people who are displaced in one form or another in the world right now? Uh, There's never been a number that high. This week as I was listening to another preacher over in Grand Rapids speak on this issue, I came across some photos, some images. And and I want us to see these because I want us to know that these are not just numbers. We can quickly turn this into stats. But to know that there are real people behind these. And so would you look and see images of the destruction that is taking place changing the landscape of Syria? If you looked seven years ago, that's not what this looked like. Would you see where half of the refugees are under the age of 18? Of parents carrying their injured children through the rubble and destruction of war. Of families getting on a raft, traveling across the Mediterranean to reach countries like Greece, only to be capsized at sea, with thousands dying, not even making it to shore, with no certainty of the life ahead of them or a peaceful return home, arriving on the shores of a foreign land separated from family. Would you see that these are the faces of these wanderers, these refugees, the world stood in disbelief as one picture surfaced just a couple of years ago of this little 3-year-old boy named Elan who was pictured smiling on the left with his older brother. Him and his family were fleeing Syria, trying to reach Europe to uh, finally meet up with some of their family in Vancouver, Canada so that they could flee all the turmoil and violence. But as they set off on sea, their boat capsized at the sea, and their father tried to hold on to both of these boys and the wife, but all of them he lost. And I won't show the picture here today, but the world saw, we saw the devastating picture of Elon's body washed up on the shore of Turkey, face down in the sand. What devastation and what horror are people facing over there? That they would risk their lives? Do you know that, I read just this past week that a mother with a baby just two weeks old got on a raft to, to get over somewhere to find refuge. What kind of horrors are they facing there? I, I mean, you see these children. If you have kids or if you, if, you, if you know kids and if you know anybody, you know what this feels like if you were to put yourself in these shoes. And all week, I've been reading and thinking on this issue. I've been watching documentaries, and I've been looking at stats, reading news articles, all while my heart was growing heavier and heavier. And one of the things that I fear is that many in our country, we're halfway across the world, many in our country, many in our city, and I'd say many even in this room and me standing here, pay little to no attention to this unprecedented crisis on the other side of the world. And if we do, a lot of us, we tend to see it just through the political grids and party lines that we are a part of. And I'll be honest, that is what I do. When issues like this come up, with controversial issues like this come up, uh, whether it be the refugee crisis or immigration or, or fill in the blank, my immediate thought is to brush up on my political leanings, read up online, And I take the lives of 11 million people, hurting people, dying people in Syria, and I make it just a party issue. Uh, Now hear me, uh, good Christians, good Bible-believing Christians can look at this issue and fall on either side of the aisle. That's not my concern here. But when we come, Seven Mile Road, when we come to issues like this, my plea, my my. I implore us to not just go to CNN, not just go to Fox or NBC or the New York Times to find out how we're going to think about this. We let these things become our sole and primary guide for how we see things. Uh, But may we not put our Bibles on the shelf and let the world tell us how to think about such things. Because listen, there's a lot of darkness in the world and a lot of brokenness and tragedy But piercing through that darkness is a glorious gospel that is able to speak into these things in a wonderful way. And God's word and God himself has wonderful things to say to these kinds of issues in our world. And so might we trust in God and his word to inform us, to guide us, to move us. And there, there must be no issue in our lives that we do not consider God. And so while our positions on these issues are, are important, they are important, uh, my intention this morning is not to persuade us to be liberal or conservative or one party or another. My intention this morning is to give us a vision of the gospel, uh, of the glorious gospel. And so I pray that we would not dim the light on this darkness, but that our own hearts might be moved to see God's heart, and 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 I'm saying this to my heart. This is a hard topic to consider. It's not like a lot of others because this is happening on the other side of the globe. It's easy to turn off. And so may God give us help this morning, and we'll be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, the passage that Daniel read for us this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. And this morning, what I want us to hear coming out of this time, here's the big idea that I want us to hear. Love for the sojourner is a witness to our conversion and a God-glorifying display to the world. I'll say that again. Love for the sojourner is a witness to our conversion and a God-glorifying display of the gospel to the world. Would you pray with me? Our Lord... We, we are weak and frail men and women. Uh, we think small. We love small. And so we are in great need of your help and your wisdom and your spirit. Would you cause hearts that are numb, hearts that are callous, both to the gospel and the brokenness in the world? Would you allow your spirit, O oh God, to transform, to revive? to to bring life, to to illuminate these words of Scripture to our hearts, that we might believe it and be transformed by it. Uh, We need your help for this. And so, God, would you use uh, not the words of man this morning, but would you, O God, uh, use the words of your Scripture, breathed and inspired by you. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. When we come to an issue like this, um, one of the natural questions that come up for us is, Does the Bible really say anything about uh, the life of a refugee? Does God consider them? Does he even have a thought for them? Does he care for them? And this passage in Luke 10 is going to be a starter for us. It's going to be sort of a a ground-level starter for us to get us thinking about that question, those questions. Does God care about the refugee? In this passage, I won't read all of it, but in this passage, a man comes... He comes to Jesus, and he's a lawyer. He knows the law in and out. He knows it. And he comes with pretense, looking to test Jesus. And what does he ask him? He says, teacher, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And He's saying this with pretense to test Jesus. And Jesus hears this question and says, listen, you know the law. You know what's in there. What's it say? How do you, how do you read it? And so the lawyer responds and says, you shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so this this lawyer has actually boiled down beautifully and succinctly what all of the law comes down to. To love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. He, He hits it out of the park. And so Jesus says to him, yep, you've got it, you're right. Do that and you will live. That's all you've got to do. So the conversation should have been done. He should have humbled himself and said, I can't do it, but I will try. But the lawyer, he, he did not like this exchange. He, he was not comfortable with the, with the exchange that happened. So for whatever reason, it says actually in the scriptures that he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. And so he asks Jesus a follow-up question. Okay, I get it. I have to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And do you hear what he's asking with that question? He's asking, who is my neighbor? Uh, What are the boundaries to which I can just walk right up to and not go beyond so that I can be in? Uh, What's the the limits? What are the edges that I can walk up to and I just want to walk up there? Who is my neighbor that I should love? Give me the parameters. And this lawyer is seeking to accomplish the letter of the law without getting the spirit of it. That's that's the intent of his question. And so to that question, Jesus, as he always does, with with humor sometimes and with with wisdom, he uses a parable to illustrate to this man and to us uh, what he means. So starting at verse 30, Jesus tells a story so offensive that completely shatters the premise of this lawyer's question. He asks Came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so the lawyer's question was, Who is my neighbor? And to that immediate question, here's how Jesus responds. He says, he puts forth a response and says, this man, right, this man walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho, no other identification is actually given to him, just a man. It could be anybody, the the lawyer who seeks more, more identification. Jesus just says, a man. And he walks down and he's met with robbers who strip him of his clothes, beat him until he's nearly dead, and then they leave. And what happens next? people begin to come. Two people come upon this man as he lays there, half dead. They will surely give aid to this man's misfortune because who are these two? Uh, They're they're religious people. It's a priest and a Levite of the temple. Uh, These would be the perfect people to show kindness to this man who is wounded. If we were to translate it to our times today, it might be a pastor or, or maybe a GCM leader or a Sunday school teacher or a deacon Someone religious who is expected to do the right thing here. And what happens? Right, the pastor comes, sees him, and passes him. Right, maybe this other church leader has, has more love. The Levite comes, sees him, and passes him. Why would they not help this man? It doesn't say why. We only see the cold reality that they do nothing Absolutely nothing for this needy man. It's almost as if there's a cadence to their mirrored response. They came, they saw, they passed him. They came, they saw, they passed him. They came, and they saw, and they passed him. But then a Samaritan came, he saw, and he had compassion. And he cared for this man. In an extravagant and over-the-top way, he binds up his wounds. He pours uh, wine and oil over it, puts him on his horse, takes him to a lodge, and leaves an open tab for his stay. Listen, in this parable, there are three men who come up to this beaten man. Two religious, who can hold their heads up high, who have status, reputation, and you have the Samaritan man, an unclean one, one who has no reputation, who is a heretic. The two religious men pass him by, and the outcast cares for him. That's the end of the parable. That's how the parable ends. Uh, So what was the lawyer's question again in verse 29? What was that question? It was, who is my neighbor? So at the end of this parable, would you listen to see how, how Jesus actually answers and responds to this lawyer. He asks a follow-up question and tells him this. Listen, you ask who is my neighbor, but which of these three do you think provided to be a neighbor? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this wounded man? Do you see the, the change that's happened there? Where we would want to construct boundary lines and limits and spaces to the people that we are to love as we ask, who is my neighbor? Jesus flips the question on on us and asks, what kind of neighbor are you? The question is not, who is my neighbor, but what kind of neighbor are you? Am I? It's not about the likability of the person because Jesus, just a few chapters ago, said, love your enemies. And so all bets are off. The worst of them you love. It can mean people who may be a risk to us, or even possibly harm us. Loving neighbor is not about proximity of how close they are, because Jesus says nothing about location. It's not about commonality with the person. It's not even about building a relationship, a long-established relationship with the person. Je- Jesus flings open the the door and says, "This: Who is your neighbor?" There are no boundaries to your love. You are to be a loving neighbor to all, to all. And this challenges the conventions of religious people. It shatters us, our Western conventions of calculating and thinking about incentive and mutual reciprocity, what's in it for me. Martin Luther King used to um, preach on this passage often. The last time he preached on it was actually the day before he was assassinated in Memphis. And he would say this, uh, the problem with the priest and Levite was that their question was, what's going to happen to me if I help this man? But he says this about the Samaritan, his question was very different. The Samaritan's question was, if I don't help this man, what will happen to him? And that kind of care is the conversion that flows out of Christian salvation. That's the kind of love that flows from a radical love that says, this may be risky, this may cost me something, this may cost me money and time, this may be uncomfortable, but I must love and care for my neighbor, whoever, wherever they might be, for this is the great love with which I was loved in Christ. And so Jesus calls us to a radical love of neighbor that flows out of our love for God. Love God and love neighbor. Certainly, if the doors have been opened wide to be a neighbor that loves all, the refugee is included. But is the refugee just an afterthought, perhaps an implication of how we consider them? Or does God have something more, something more specific to say uh, to the refugee? Are there other implications? Does the Bible have more to say? Well, I want to say that the Bible does have a lot to say about the life of the refugee. Because in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word ger is translated into sojourner, or or immigrant, or or, uh, alien, or a foreigner. And this word, ger, is used over 92 times alone in the Old Testament. And it's often used in relation to two other vulnerable groups in the Bible, orphan and widows. And so when the lawyer that just questions Jesus speaks about the law, the verse that he quotes is from Leviticus 19.18, all the way back in the Old Testament, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's where it connects go a little further down Leviticus and Leviticus 19 the same chapter down to verse 33 here's what it says when a stranger sojourns with you in your land you shall do him no wrong you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt So God says two things to the Israelites about these sojourners who are among Israel in this book, right? One, he says, don't do them any wrong. Don't treat them bad. Instead, treat them like they are one of your own, like they're native among you. They're part of you. They're knit together with you. Love them and treat them as you do yourself. Don't put them on the outside, but bring them in. Love them. And two, what is the motivation the reason that God gives the Israelites to love the sojourner? Uh, what's the motivation, the impulse, the fuel for why they should love them? God says, love them as yourself because that was who you were. That was your story. You were a foreigner. You were a sojourner. You were on the outside. And it's, it's as if if these Israelites who have received grace and mercy from the Lord having been freed from captivity as sojourners having received all this would now turn around and not extend love and compassion to the sojourner among them they would have missed it completely if that was their response it's as if it would be like a refugee or an immigrant coming into this country being welcomed in and settled in and as soon as they get through the doors They turn around and start pushing everyone else out. That was them. Shouldn't you turn around and welcome? So God tells the Israelites, that was you, and so you do the same. God calls Israel to remember their difficult history and God's provision so they might be moved to treat the sojourner among them with compassion and with love. And listen, as we consider even how we think about life, As Americans, I think the reality is, if we were to be honest, is that we tend to be very uh, self-preserving, right? We like to huddle in. We are really good at loving ourselves. That first part of the law, love yourselves, I can do that, right? We want to be comfortable and healthy and prosperous and wealthy, and those are all good things, And we actually extend that beyond just our individual self. We have family. The the circle grows, right? We want our kids to be uh, good and joyful and have a good life and be protected. And our our, our wives and our husbands and our our parents and our relatives. And and then perhaps the circle grows even a little wider. Uh, We want our friends and people here to be good and protected and have a good life that is risk-free. Maybe our neighborhoods and other circle forms in our cities and our country, Right? The, the circle grows wider and wider, but the wider that circle gets, the harder it is for me to feel anything but indifference to the people on the far end of that circle. In fact, those on the outer parts can threaten things close to me, and so I self-preserve, and I act in ways that would only benefit me and my people and my tribe. Yet everything in the scriptures call us to something wholly different. To seek out the welfare of those who are on the outside so that we might bring them in. Seeking the welfare of the refugee in ways that might affect us against our human and American need to protect. In the Old Testament, another beautiful picture of how God speaks into the story of the sojourner is found in the story of Ruth maybe you remember a couple years ago, we did a whole sermon series on the book of Ruth. In this book, you have this Israelite man, Elimelech, who has a wife named Naomi, and they have two sons, and they're from Israel. And because of a famine that has come up, they have to flee their homeland and sojourn to a land called Moab. It's a foreign land. Moab wasn't a good place. It wasn't made up of the best people. They had a troubled history. And yet, both of his sons end up marrying Moabite women. Soon after they marry, what happens? Uh, Elimelech and his two sons, all three of them, die. And what's left is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. They're left as widows. And they are in this land, Moab. And the one daughter-in-law leaves, but Ruth stays committed to her mother-in-law and says, I'm with you. Your people are my people. And what we see is that they actually move back to their homeland. They go back, and Naomi is actually a foreigner there. They go back to Bethlehem, but uh, Ruth is actually a foreigner in, in Bethlehem, and she comes in hungry, seeking food, seeking shelter, seeking refuge as a foreigner. Ruth is on the outside of this community, and she has come seeking something without resource, and then what happens when she is in the field? Seeking for resource, a man named Boaz comes into the scene. He owns that field, and he comes in, and he doesn't kick her out of the field. He doesn't tell her to go away. Instead, he seeks her out. He makes sure she is protected. He invites her to dine at his table and sends her with buckets of food to go home. And Boaz eventually takes Ruth as his own wife, who through her lineage, generations and generations later, who comes? Jesus. Why do you suppose that this entire book, the Ruth, the book of Ruth, is included in the Bible? Among many reasons, could it be that it is to show us that God cares for the stranger, the sojourner, the refugee, the alien, the one on the outside? those who are seeking food and shelter and safety and just life. Boaz in this story is a mirror of God that shows us how God in Christ seeks out the outsider and overwhelms them with his undeserved grace. That's what we see here. The refugee crisis in Syria um, presents us with complexities, but it also presents us with a unique opportunity to bring the gospel to people in need these kinds of moments in history are where the relevance of the gospel gets shown forth in all of its beauty and all of its brilliance against the backdrop of darkness the light of the gospel would you consider the implications of the gospel for those who identify as refugees for one moment as i was reminded this week jesus himself he was a refugee. Would you think back to him and his his birth, shortly after birth, King Herod, he put out a death sentence against all the male babies and was seeking blood to snuff out Jesus and to kill him. And so what happened? Jesus flees with his mom and dad to Egypt as a refugee in a foreign land. Jesus knew the feeling of being vulnerable and being unlike the people around him so if the refugee hears god understands me he is no stranger to their pain he knows their pain and sympathizes with the refugee and they need to hear this they need to know this gospel what else jesus not only just sympathizes with their weaknesses but he is also the great naturalizer what do i mean by that I'm not naturally a citizen of the United States. I was born on the other side of the world in Dubai. And in order for me to become a part of this country as a citizen, I had to go through a process known as naturalization, right? Where I went through a process to to be brought into this country and to be a part of this country in a real way. This enabled me, as someone who is far off, foreign, uh, distant, not a part of this land, to be a part of this land. And what does Jesus do for all of us, according to Ephesians 2? It says, we were once separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen, for the refugee seeking a physical home, a place to find peace and refuge and security, the gospel brings them a secure and sure eternal hope in Christ. If they would just hear it and believe it an eternal and resting place that is without war and without bloodshed and oppression, one whose ruler and king is just and merciful and loving, one in which they have brothers and sisters and multitudes whom they identify with through the reconciling cross of Christ. And together on that day, not as sojourners and exiles, but we will all together be home. We will not be homeless. We will not be wandering. And give our God the glory that he is due as one people. I said, my road, in our love and care for these women, these men, these boys, these girls in need, we have the great privilege and honor to partake in the gospel. That's what we get to do. What do I mean? What, What made the Samaritan different on that road? What made the Samaritan different on that road? He did not first consider his own gain, his own reputation, his own safety, his own comfort, his own resource. He considered his own position as less than himself so that he might lift up that man that was wounded. Has not Christ done this for us, oh sinner? Is this not our story? Were we not the ones that were desperately wounded, bleeding out on the side of the road in our sin when other possible saviors approached and we hoped they would stop and save us, but they passed away. And then Christ comes, lifts us up with compassion, stoops down to a stranger on the road, an enemy to him, bound up our wounds, anoints us, pays a price for us, costing his own life. If we would not just get the privilege to partake in this kind of work through care for the refugee, what a joy that would be. Because we would get to see in part through the works of our hands to the glory of Christ, the great love and great lengths to which Christ has gone to save us unto himself. And so listen, there is a, there's a place for discussion on laws and regulations and borders, I think there's a place to acknowledge that, as many of you know, Romans 13 talks about how governing authorities are set in place to restrain evil and to protect us for our good. There's a place to discuss that. And I do think that there are times as citizens, especially in America, in a democracy like ours, where we we do stand up and we advocate when something is off. And I think there is a place for that. But listen, our hope is not in chariots, Our hope is not in this world and the rulers of this world. Our hope is in God. And we trust in God. Right now, there are families, young babies, pregnant mothers, desperate fathers on a raft somewhere on the sea, seeking life, trying to escape death. And I think, church, it is the moment where we can step in and be a radically different voice in the midst of this brokenness. To respond not through the grid of politics and self-preservation and self-centeredness, but through the grid of the gospel with compassion for struggling people. And I think the difference can open the door for gospel witness. This week I heard of one man who was on the front lines of this Syrian crisis, and he's there receiving refugees. And he was telling of this one man who has fled Syria and come onto the shores of Europe. And this man just offered him a blanket in the name of Jesus. He said, would you have this blanket? I come in Christ's name. And the man responded to him and said, listen, who is this Jesus? Since I have come home, left home and come here, he has given me food He has given me a place to stay, and now he gives me this blanket. Who is this man? I want to know him. Would you let that sink in for a moment? The opportunity for gospel witness, for millions of people, most who don't know Jesus, to be able to tangibly know Christ so that their hearts might be transformed unto eternal life. That's the opportunity that the gospel gives us in this moment. Uh, Listen, there's a lot more to consider. This morning we even had um, a a young lady from Afghanistan who's a missionary. I was speaking with her just in between services, and she was telling me what the climate is like over there. there, There's a lot of struggle. Uh, You you don't get a full picture of this until you look people in the eyes and see what they're going through. Listen, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of politics. Um, there's a lot of things that we have to fight through to see these people as image bearers of God. We're struggling. So there's a lot to consider on how to move forward. And honestly, this week, that's been one of the hardest things for me to think about. I don't know where to go from here. Um, I, I can tell you this I want to continue talking, and I want us to continue talking. Uh, there's so many things we could do. Should we go there? Should we help refugees resettle here in the states? Should we give money? Should we speak on behalf of them? Should we advocate? And to all of that, I would say yes. Uh, but in this moment, as we are immature in thinking through this, we need to ask God for help and for wisdom, and to burden our hearts with a love for neighbor. So, on the other side of the world, who is who are dying? who need us, who needs the church to preach the gospel and to reach them with physical needs. And so let our conversations continue. Uh, For now, we pray and ask God for help. And so would you uh, hear once again with me, love for the sojourner is a witness to our conversion and a God-glorifying display of the gospel to the world. Let's pray.